Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough for you, even if they don't. Today is July the 22nd, 2019. This is episode 2475 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, that means it's time for a listener feedback show, and here's what I got queued up for you guys today. What is toilet cancer and what does it teach us about government? You think I'm kidding. I'm not. Toilet that comes with a cancer warning. I'll tell you why and where it comes from and why pretty much everything has a cancer label on it anymore if it's sold in the horrible state of California. Uh, kudzu sucks. We all know what kudzu is, the vine that ate the South, but might it create an opportunity. Next, how Libra investors, that's the cryptocurrency that Facebook plans to bring out, will make money, and the bigger lesson that teaches us. Mainstream media continues to beg for attention, but does anyone even care? I'm going to tell you why I think that mainstream media is losing viewers basically as people die. Yeah, I'll explain that when we get to it. How about selecting an ultralight spinning rod? What should you get? It depends. But what does it depend on? We'll talk about that. It mainly depends on where you will be fishing, in my opinion, anyway. Best uses for sous vide cooking and why sous vide is so amazing in the first place. My thoughts on Kratom, as limited as they are, and maybe we need to go down a road that we did with CBD with Kratom. I'll tell you what I mean by that when we get to that segment. And my final segment today, choosing between uh, the 357 Magnum, the 3030 Winchester, and the 44 Remington Magnum in a lever-action rifle. We'll get to all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Ridge Wallet. I love Ridge Wallet. Ridge Wallet has changed my life just a little bit for the better. I used to be the guy that had that big old billfold on my right ass cheek, and, you know, then you sit down and it's uncomfortable, so you take it out so you don't screw your posture and your back up, and then you forget your wallet, and it's in your truck while you're at the grocery store with half your crap in your hands and headed to the checkout register and all of that. Ridge Wallet changed all that for me. It was a little bit of a, an adjustment to, to t give up some of the stuff that was always in my wallet. I am a prepper. I do believe in EDC, so every little thing's like, I don't have that on me anymore. But two and a half years of using the Ridge Wallet now, and I don't miss anything about my old billfold anymore. I've even stopped playing the grab-ass game. I don't reach back and try to find it anymore. Now I check my front pocket where I keep it, and it's always there because I don't notice it until I reach for it. You really want to check this thing out. It'll help you become a minimalist in a really great way, and you'll find a lot of people going, oh, that's the Ridge Wallet when you pull it out. Uh, I was surprised when I first started using it how many people were aware of the Ridge Wallet and how popular it really was. Now that I've used one for so long, I understand why. You will, too. You can find it at RidgeWallet.com. Remember, you do get a discount if you buy from Ridge Wallet and you are a member of my member support brigade. Next up today, JM Bullion. You know, guys, I have been so consistent with my recommendations on silver and gold. Five to ten percent of your net wealth as a wealth assurance program. I've been saying that for 11 years on the Survival Podcast. 11 years. And there's only one place I would buy my silver and gold online, and that is JM Bullion. You want the reasons? Okay, here they are. Number one, they have better pricing than Monix and Atmex and the other big silver and gold houses. 
Okay, so when you buy silver, you want to spend as little as possible because it's all the same. That's the point. So you already have better pricing. Next up, they sponsor this show. So they're loyal to me. They're loyal to you guys, the audience. We should be loyal to them because we're already getting good pricing. Next up, free shipping on all orders. Again, that's just a cost decision right there. But one more thing, they do a discount for MSB members. So you get the best price to begin with, then you get free shipping, then you get a company that supports the show that you love, and then you get a discount in a place where nobody gets a discount. JM Bullion, check them out. That is my go-to for silver and gold. If you give them one try, I think you'll find out they'll become yours as well. And on the rare instance that there is a problem, let me know. I will talk directly to the president, and we will get a squared away for you. Um, that's the kind of company I want to work with, someone I can reach at the top whenever there's an issue. Not very often there's one, but if there is one, I can take care of it. Anyway, next up, <clears throat> before we get into the stuff for the show today, we are only 25 episodes now from episode 2,500. We are T-minus 25 and counting down. And I want you to be a member, I mean, I'm sorry, I want you to be part of episode 2,500. Can you do that for me? Here's how you do it. Just figure out what you want to talk about. Write down a couple little notes and call the jerk line. 877-644-1345. 877-644-1345. And leave a message of about two minutes or less. And just say, here's the things that are better in my life because of the survival podcast and or because of the communities built around it, like the Zello group, the MeWe group, the Facebook group, the forum, etc. And... If you don't mind, you can tell me I'm a big old jerk for doing it and messing your life up by making it better. That's the whole kind of the joke of the jerk line. Uh, we are running down the clock here. Um, it's 25 episodes away. We'll probably be five out when I shut it down. So you probably got about 20 episodes. So you got about four weeks to get your call in for episode 2500. It will be one for the history books. You want to be part of it. So call the jerk line, 877-644-1345. So let, let's start out with the concept of toilet ca cancer. Um, Tactical Redneck sent this in. He says, Hi, Jack. What the hell? Toilet cancer is wreaking havoc across the world, and you're not informing your listeners about it. I recently brought a new toilet for a long-term rental, and it came with a notice inside the box that said, Notice to California customers. Warning. Cancer and Reproductive Harm, www.p65warnings.ca.gov. <laughs> toilet cancer is a thing. I'm expecting to see at least one, maybe even 200,000 cases of toilet cancer this year. Why are you not informing your listeners of the risk of toilet cancer? So anyway, I've made my personal mission in life to raise awareness of the dangers of toilet cancer to save lives and support our veterans. Hashtag toilet cancer. Hashtag get a composting toilet. Hashtag I'm a hero. Why? You're welcome, humanity, the tactical redneck. Um, on a serious note, I think hashtag toilet cancer might be a new bullshit flag for every time politician opens their mouth and noise comes out. Uh, and for the love of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, I don't live in California because I'm trying to avoid stupid people, stupid places, and stupid things, which seems to be their only export. In the words of Sherlock Holmes, Stopped inflicting your opinions on the rest of the world. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about why this is actually important to be aware about and, and what this really comes down to. So um, California's big on propositions, and they only have one good one, and that's the one that restricts the uh, increase on property taxes. The rest of their propositions are bad. 
uh, really bad. So this is how Prop 65 basically works. If something contains a substance, and that substance, under any circumstances, has been linked to possible cancer and or reproductive issues, then that item must contain a warning label that says this product contains something known to the state of California to possibly cause cancer. Now, I have you might even think, well, that's that's not bad. I mean, you know, it's good for people to know. See, the problem is that let's say that you have a toilet and that toilet has a ceramic, and in that ceramic there is a particular chemical, and that chemical, when ingested at large levels, causes cancer. You still got to put the Prop 65 warning on it because it contains the chemical, even though it's inert, bound up in the ceramic of the toilet. If you um, are buying a generator and that generator um, is lubricated with uh, an oil to protect the parts in it until it starts getting used, and that particular oil has any component of it whatsoever that in any way <clears throat> has ever been linked to the causing cancer, like say, if people were exposed to large amounts of it being burned, uh, or if they were to bathe their skin with it, then the generator actually has to come with a, a cancer warning. In fact, one of the products that I recommend at T-SPAS is the Big Buddy Heater, and they have the, the special California version, which simply is a different box. Yeah, it's a different box that has the Prop 65 warning, because somewhere in that device there is a chemical that may cause cancer. Um, Long ago, I kind of got into this this, this uh, whole phase of making my own sushi. I found the best uh, wasabi powder I could find. That's on T-Spaz as well. Fortunately, that did the wasabi. Apparently, there's nothing in the container or the wasabi powder itself that causes cancer. But uh, I became just totally fascinated with the seaweed that they use to make the salads that you get at sushi places. That little, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's the little stringy seaweed that comes with the... Um, Sesame seeds on it. It's very, very good. Um, it's almost impossible to find in, in a dehydrated form that actually ends up looking like that. You have to buy it frozen to get it the way they do at the sushi places. But I did find a dehydrated version that doesn't look the same, but it tastes pretty damn good. And when I was looking at it, I noticed it had a cancer warning on it. And there was a whole bunch of people pissed off on Amazon that I bought this and now I'm going to get cancer from eating it. Well, I believe that the substance that was in the plant in quantity sufficient to require the warning is actually something people use to prevent cancer, but in high enough concentrations it can work the other way, and it's iodine. So the seaweed has iodine in it, and therefore it has to have the Prop 65 cancer warning. There literally is almost nothing that California doesn't say causes cancer. And the only reason you need to know this is so that you can ignore it and not be alarmed by this stupid warning. And all it is is more proof that everything, and I mean everything, that government touches is just ruined. Like, you would think on the surface of this that it would be a good thing. Hey, you know, if something has something that's known by science to cause cancer, we should let people know. Well, then exactly what does that mean? See, government has a hard time defining what something means, and they end up just deciding it means any and all. Now, remember that California is the state that fought tooth and nail against its own residents uh, and spent tons of money to push back on labeling products that contain GMOs. 
So it's not important for you to know that the soybeans you're ingesting have Roundup in them, which is proven to cause cancer. And by the way, your soy products in California don't come with a Prop 65 cancer warning. Isn't that interesting? Because Roundup is not actually considered to be a component or ingredient of the soy that has the Roundup in it that you can actually test and verify there are levels of Roundup in it. So even when government had good intentions, it literally failed to do the one thing that it was supposed to do, which is let people know there might be a health risk from this thing if you use it as it's designed to be used. But it will warn you that you might get cancer from your toilet. I mean, that is how pathetic government is. And so when, when I come off with my bent toward pure libertarianism, also known as voluntarism, also known as the scary, scary word of anarchism, and people tell me how bad things would be and ask me how it would work, I just look at the way things are working and say, are you really going to defend this? Do you really think it's impossible that the free market and voluntary association cannot give us better solutions to problems? Because I think that if things really do cause cancer, people do want to know about them. And if you didn't have all of this false pretense of government protectionism, that we might actually have companies whose entire purpose in life was to let people know. And they might actually be successful and people might actually pay attention to them because they wouldn't be like, oh, we already have some. If the government says it's safe, it's safe. Because that's the problem we have. What most average people believe today, due to this false pretense that government is, is there to protect you, is that, well, if the government says it's okay, it must be. That's how people really think. As stupid as I mean, if you are somewhat informed as a human being on planet Earth today, if you've paid attention at all, if you've crawled out from under the rock that the state planted you under as a child in the, in the indoctrination system, doesn't that sound ridiculous? The claim that if the government says it's safe, it must be safe? Doesn't that sound stupid? I'm going to tell you that the majority of people, probably 9 out of 10, don't think there's anything stupid about that at all. They would actually say, well, of, of course, that's, that's the purpose of government. No, the purpose of government is to protect a racket of theft and extortion and to protect monopolies. That is the purpose of government. It is not to break up monopolies. It is not to promote equality. It is a protection racket. And if you actually look, not at what government says, but what government does and the results of the government's actions, it is impossible to make a case otherwise. You want to know the who, who benefits the most by drug prohibition by our government? Who benefits the most? Do the people benefit? No. No, the people do not benefit the most, certainly. Who benefits the most? The drug cartels. You want to destroy the drug cartels and the money they make and the evil that they do in the world? Eliminate prohibition. Make drugs legal, safe, and affordable. Let any company that wants to go in the business of producing them, producing them in known quantities, with known ingredients, with known purities, with known dosages, and who the hell is going to go out and buy smack off the street? Nobody. So what happens to the drug cartels tomorrow if prohibition is eliminated? They go away. They're destroyed. So the number one benefit is drug cartels. Number two, the prison system probably and the government itself kind of intermixed together. Any benefit to society comes at the very bottom of the list. 
that's all I can say on that. Let's go on to something else. Jeff sends me an email. It says, is kudzu covering land an opportunity? Summary, I'm a renter in the south, outside Knoxville, Tennessee. I notice numerous tracts of land that are left unutilized due to the fact they are totally submerged in kudzu. Is this an opportunity? I wonder if a landowner might be interested in land use exchange for eradication. I'm aware that most all conventional methods of eradicating kudzu involve multiple years' worth of type herbicides. Of course, I would not want to engage in that method. I have read where some folks attempt to control with goats. Is this actually an effective method? The greenery dies off at frost, so there's a period available to navigate the terrain. I was wondering if cutting prior to frost to weekend the dormancy and vigilant attention via spring via goats might be successful. I'd be very interested on your thoughts on this idea. Could this be a thing or a waste of time? Jeff, MSB member, uh, deck gardener. Well, Jeff. Maybe. Um, first of all, I have to confess that, like, if you want to ask me about the livestock that I know the least about from any practical application of things, it's goats. I know more about sheep than I do goats, and I don't know a lot about sheep. All right? Um, but I know enough about them to know they absolutely will eat kudzu. I know enough about them to know that they can be controlled with portable electric fencing, Uh, and probably require the protection of a livestock guardian dogs while that's going on. Um, they will flat eat kudzu hard. Will it actually control the kudzu to the point of eradication? I find it doubtful for a variety of reasons. Number one is that kudzu is a vine that is perennial in nature in that it Even when it completely dies back, it has rhizomes from which new vines emerge every year. It's also a vine that easily roots when it makes contact with the soil. So this is how it, it, it almost marches across the south. So the vine grows, it falls over, it touches the ground, it roots, it forms new rhizomes, and it just keeps going. What goats would enable you to do is to control it but I don't know that it can be eradicated. I don't think that it can be eradicated. So what you might have is some sort of a goat, free food for your goat type business, right? Like, so if you had goats that you were using as dairy goats and they were being milked, or you were raising goats for meat, and basically you'd be able to find probably a lot of people that would love to have their land grazed, and you might, instead of paying a grazing fee, get some small fee from them for grazing your animals, which not only eliminates an expense, but it also um, converts an expense to an income. Here's the thing you got to understand, though. Number one, managing livestock itself is a skill. So before you even ventured into this, you would need to first learn to graze and manage goats. I... I When people say, why do you know so little about goats? And I, my response is because so many people that I know that got goats ended up hating their life because of goats. Okay, So on the other hand, I know people that love goats. I know people that they run entire businesses based on goats, and they love their goats. And the goats do amazing things. I know uh, one guy that runs a business in California, and he runs goats through vineyards at the right time of year for weed control. And the vineyards pay him to run his goats through their vineyards. He has to do other things with his goats because it's seasonal, etc. And you would too. But I think there's potential here. 
what it will take to realize that potential is something that I don't know. And it seems like one of those things that's so obvious that somebody would be doing it if it worked. I have seen um, businesses built on goat grazing on other people's lands, primarily as a weed and brush control mechanism. I've even seen it done like up and down the sides of highways, maintaining highway easements and things like that. I have not seen it done in any area with kudzu. I don't also know, does kudzu have any effect on the flavor of goat, goat milk? Because any dairy animal is going to have a different flavor to the milk, like a different effect on the milk based on whatever their primary diet is. I also know that while goats will eat kudzu, I do not know that, may, you know, what is the... What is the impact of the diet being almost exclusively kudzu on the health of goats? So these are all questions that you would need to answer. If anybody has used goats for kudzu control and can add more to this, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me or comment in today's show notes. Uh, next up today, um, this comes from Jake uh, out of Tennessee as well. Uh, it's an article on Coindesk, and it is how the people behind the Libra cryptocurrency with Facebook stand to make billion-dollar returns. And let me give you kind of the basics without reading the entire article. Everybody's talking about the Libra cryptocurrency, but there's actually two cryptocurrencies. The one everybody's talking about, Libra, is the one that you would use that basically is a, is a, is a coin pegged to the dollar. It's, it's a USDT coin. So if you wanted, uh, if you had a hundred bucks and you wanted to buy Libra, you'd get a hundred Libra. It, it's pretty simple. And then you can buy stuff with it, what have you. But the way Libra gets created, unlike many cryptocurrencies, it's literally created on demand based on when somebody wants to buy some and they can't get it from the market itself. So Joe decides he wants to start using Libra cryptocurrency on Facebook Marketplace. So Joe, instead of going to Tom and saying, here's $100 cash, send me $100 in Libra, he just said, charge my account with 200 Libra. So Facebook, and it's really not Facebook, it's this consortium that's being managed by the Swiss, then creates 200 Libra. Or there's some reserve of Libra that's been exchanged and it's sold out of there. So it's sold into circulation. Now, the other cryptocurrency that, that's happening here is um, a coin for investors. And to buy one is $10 million. It's either one is $10 million or you have to buy $10 million worth of them. I, I don't really know exactly how that works out, but it's called the Libra Investment Token. And the way that it works is all this money gets put in as they sell Libra into circulation, and the way that Facebook and their friends, which is the big bank systems of the world, will then maintain the dollar pegging is they will buy secure assets like government bonds, for instance, paying you know 2% interest. And you might think, well, 2% interest, that's not much. It's a lot when it's not your money. Do you understand that? It's not their money. It's your money. So basically, all of the Libra users become like bank account holders who make no interest in return for their consideration of holding and using and managing Libra currency. So what that does is it actually takes this consortium of people 
and it means that they are going to become, if this works, if people actually use it, the largest bank on the planet. Now, to give you an idea of how big a return this would be, if you could buy a $500 uh, investment token, which you can't because you have to buy $10 million to get in, all right? But if you could buy a $500 one, if Libra becomes about 10% of the commonly used currency in America, your $500 over a 10-year period would return you about $34,000. Not bad. Because you're making interest on everybody else's money, your share of that interest. And you've only tendered your $10 million. So you say, well, that's $10 million a lot. Um, you're, you're looking at $10 million producing about $4 billion over 10 years. And that's, that is the, like the, the lowest level of adoption. And the more people that use it, the more money these investors stand to make. And these are tech companies and banking consortiums and companies like PayPal. Now, that's all interesting, but it, it, it goes right into class warfare. It goes right into, hey, hey, look how much money these people are going to make. Yeah, that's what they do. That's what people do. They make money. Um, the bigger story here is that this is a threat to government-controlled banking institutions, which is what the Federal Reserve sort of kind of is. It, it's, it, is a, it is a hodgepodge of fascism. The Fed Reserve calls the shots, but they only do it because the government allows them to. Right? Um, in this instance, you would have a bank that could become the single largest economic system in the world with almost no potential for government control whatsoever. It's almost impossible for government to control it. And this is the, this is the bigger lesson. So recently, Facebook got called in front of the clowns. That's what we call Congress around here if you're new. And they said, well, you know, we need to do some oversight of this Libra thing. Like, you guys can't just... And they said it's being overseen by the Swiss. In other words, screw. Go screw. You can't do anything. They basically told the Congress of the United States, there is nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. It's a, it's a Swiss asset. Well, we're gonna, you know, you're not going to do anything. We'll pay taxes on all this money so you guys get your token, your tribute, but you're not going to do shit. You can't do anything. And, and one of the senators, uh, to his credit, who finally kind of actually looked at Bitcoin, because they, they, they mashed Bitcoin into this. That's when, you know, the old man yelled at Bitcoin. Donald Trump yelled at Bitcoin. Um, somebody made a meme. It was Abe Simpson from The Simpsons yelling at the sun, but it, they put a Bitcoin symbol over it. Old man yells at Bitcoin. All of that was kind of hodgepodge together. Well, the one senator, I can't remember his name, basically said, there's nothing we can do. Like, they finally figured out, like, you can't stop cryptocurrency. There's nothing you can do. So now what you'll see is government basically will probably start trying to adopt this model under government cryptos. Still not understanding the entire point of crypto is to get rid of all of them. That's the, the point. Now what this is, Libra and Facebook with you know, 2 billion world users as a base to start from, is a virtual nation. Exactly what I've been talking about for six years. Six years ago was the first time I got on the air and said, there will be virtual nations. Now, this might be the evil virtual nation. 
But when you have an organization this big with this much to lose, they can basically tell Congress, go screw, it's being regulated by the Swiss. You guys, you're too late. You should have made the like everybody wanted to make a deal with you. You didn't want to make a deal. We wouldn't have made a deal with the Swiss. And it's being done by a nonprofit Swiss entity that you have no authority over whatsoever. And we're just going to use it. And there's nothing you can do. If Facebook can do that, so can anybody else. So can anybody else. Anybody else can form a consortium. Anybody else can take either a proof of work or a proof of stake currency and do this. And anchor it into some nation that's, you know, historically neutral that basically tells, this is what the Swiss do. Yeah, we're not on anybody's side. Well, we don't want you doing this. That's nice. We understand. But you're still going to do it. Yeah, that's what we do. But we don't want you to, yeah, we, I'm sorry. But you can't use, you know, American system. Well, we, we don't really control that. It's, we just oversee the currency and there's no accounts. So it's not like the banks where you can do that. Um, we can't really help you. Bye. Thanks. Come again. Thank you. Come again. I mean, like, that's the Swiss. There are other nations that want to do things like this because it's not a Swiss virtual nation. The Swiss are just a, a, a place to house the parts that need to exist in the real world versus the virtual. There, what, what about the potential someday of somebody getting pretty enterprising, going around to all the Native American tribes and getting the ones that want to, to partake in, oh, I don't know, a delegated proof of stake, but instead of the delegation being based on something like ARC where voters vote, whoever gets the most votes becomes a delegate, that each tribe becomes a delegate, and they set up a tribal banking system. And then if you want to be a tribal citizen, with the protections that come with being a tribal citizen, they create a second tier. Like, you, you don't get everything a tribal citizen gets, but you do get the protections of the tribe. Whatever they decide to make that, because the more of them and the more they get their shit together, the more that could be, including things like the, the, the claiming a nation status as a unified tribes of North America because they're all already kind of sovereign as it is. And then saying, well, if we're a unified confederacy of tribes with this system, then we should be able to issue passports. Right? Well, that would be one of those things that second-tier citizen could get by buying into the system that they could sell that currency into circulation with. What, what politician wants to screw with an American Indian other than Elizabeth Warren? Right? I mean, it's like, it's a death sentence. You just don't touch that. And by the time they got to where they wanted to touch with it, they would have somebody sitting in front of Congress saying, there's nothing you could do. It's the United Confederacy of North American Tribes. And it's being regulated by the Swiss. So go screw. Anybody can do this. We're reaching that tipping point. Facebook has an amazing opportunity because they have so many people but they have an awful lot of people that just use their platform that don't really like them. What if an entity was somebody people actually liked and wanted to be associated with? Do you really see a lot of people that don't work for Facebook walking around wearing Facebook t-shirts? Do you see a lot of people getting Facebook tattoos? No, but you see an awful lot of white kids with tribal tattoos now, don't you? Right? Because they think it's cool. I'm not even saying that's the way to go. I'm just saying that there is this opportunity at this point. Because one of the things that gives a nation sovereignty is sovereignty over its currency. Something that the modern nations of the world 
gave away to central banks a long time ago. It's not just our Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, etc. It, it's, it's all over the world. All the developed nations have given away that sovereignty. That's why they're not sovereign anymore. But what if a voluntary association of individuals driven by the sovereignty of a currency were to create a unified virtual nation? There's been attempts at it. They've pretty much failed. There were also a lot of attempts before a light bulb actually stayed lit. But I saw a light bulb that's over 100 years old, one of the original Edison bulbs in Colorado that still works. So eventually, somebody got it right. You see what I'm saying? That's the real... I have a link to this article. If you want to understand the back end and how they're going to make all their money, you can read the whole thing yourself. But the real story here is, when summoned by the Congress clowns, the people behind Libra said, it's regulated by the Swiss. You don't get to say what happens. And a senator said, we can't regulate Bitcoin. It's impossible. It's impossible. We can put regulations around it, but they're still going to do whatever they want to. They, we, there's nothing we can do. See, Vin Armani was on the show a long time ago, and he said, the government has never had an arms race with pure technology before. And governments can win any arms race until we get to a pure technology arms race. In other words, if we're, we're talking about the technology as building an airplane, the government can win. But if it's raw technology, if it's code, in a world of open source ideas and open source programming, the government can't win that war. Because the Hydra is so multi-headed, it's impossible. Just my thoughts. Uh, next up, this is just a quick short email, but um, it, it gave me kind of a bigger... Um, understanding, I guess, uh, or a, a thought of the day type thing. Uh, Nick from Nebraska says, Hi, Jack. Just heard an ad that further marks the decline of mainstream news and weather. Uh, the tagline was, We are broadcasters. And they were talking about how they are, quote, on the ground, end quote, fetching our news. I found it hilarious. They now have to pat themselves on the back uh, for us to try to keep us listening and watching. Love your show, Nick from Nebraska. Um, I think it's a bigger problem than they realize, which is generally how most bureaucracies work. For as long as there's been radio and television, up until you know about 20 years ago, maybe 20, almost 30 years ago now, with CNN being the first example of a breakout. Um, for, so until 30 years ago, you pretty much had three main sources of news in the United States: ABC, CBS, and NBC. And when cable came online in the 80s and CNN basically decided we were gonna, they were going to do 24-7 news, it was a big deal. And people didn't know what they were going to talk about. And to a large degree, they really didn't do anything amazing, but eventually it caught on. And people's appetite to know what was going on in the world grew. And then challenging 24-7 news entities like MSNBC and Fox News, etc. rose up. But in the end, we still had this concept that the news was either on the radio, the television, or in a thing called a newspaper. Then the Internet came along, and mainstream media still held on to a lot of control because even though anybody could say anything and anybody could report anything, 
when someone saw NBC or CBS or MSNBC or Fox News, they saw the story is credible. Maybe it was a lie, but it was mostly credible. Like, at least the organization putting it out believed that it was true. They might have gotten it wrong. The trust in media has reached an all-time low as they've been proven to have an, uh, an agenda and to lie. Um, massive, massive fake news. It really is. And it's not... Trump agitates that because Trump's a master troller. He really is. But it's, it really has very little to do with Donald Trump and more to do with the American people have realized the media is liars. And they lie through omission. They lie through taking facts and sticking together in ways that really don't add up. They lie by simply ignoring their primary journalistic responsibility. So here's an example of that. If you have a credible source as a journalist, and that credible source says, blah, 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 happened, okay, you are supposed to then take that information and go find another credible source who can validate it. And once you have two independent sources that validate it, you can report it as the truth. It's a confirmed story. Doesn't mean you'll never get it wrong, but people know through the rules of journalism what that means. Confirmed story, two independent sources. That kind of turned into, well, we have one source, so that's good enough. That's always actually been good enough if you couldn't confirm it. It was supposed to be reported as a reliable source, as yet unconfirmed. And that just kind of went further and further and further into the fine print. Now we have stories being reported as though they are twice confirmed independent things that are just somebody's claim. Not even, a, not even a credible source. Like they know it's not, and they do that. So that's just one example of what I mean by fake news. It doesn't necessarily have to mean direct intentional lie. So they've lost credibility. And then what people have figured out is that Getting information directly from people you trust is the way to go. And no longer do we trust someone because they put them in a suit and put them behind a desk and say, and this is the news. Like, we just, that doesn't buy it anymore. Like, this person that I know I trust. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But that's where people are getting their news today. And I really believe the whole, we are broadcasters, pat themselves on the back thing that Nick's talking about here. Is, is a much bigger problem and that mainstream media is dying a slow death only because Americans live a long time. I think that right now, if you went and you asked people based on their age, where do you get most of your news, that you would get into the 50s minimum before people would say whatever the source they say is is mainstream news. You see, you can't say, well, Facebook, because Facebook is just syndication. So if that person says Facebook, but the majority of news that they trust on there is from MSNBC or Fox News, they're still using them. They're still using mainstream media. But I believe that every time somebody dies in this country of old age, they lose a viewer they're never getting back. 30-year-olds do not watch the news. And you could say, well, 30-year-olds were never that. No. When I was a kid, kids watched the news with mom and dad because that's what was on the one TV you had. And when I was 25, I watched the news. Not the way that you would probably as you know somebody in their mid-40s if things had stayed the way they were, but you at least paid attention to it. People do care about what's going on, but they don't care about what the media is talking about anymore. And I, I really think that the days of mainstream media 
are as long as it takes for the majority of people that still use it, I hate to put it this way, to die. As their viewers die, so shall they. And I really think if you examine that, it might sound outlandish, but I think if you examine it, if somebody does the research, you're going to find out that that's the way that it works. Anyway, let's go on to something else. Start a little bit about something a little more fun. How about fishing? So, Mike Laprise is who this is from. He is, uh, of course, one half of our uh, couple that talk a lot about homeschooling and parenting. Uh, Mike and Sue Laprise uh, from Halo by Sue. Um, he sent me an email, and here's what he said. He said he recently got an Akuma Avenger ABF-20A as a Father's Day gift. That's a reel that I really, really recommend. He said, I know you paired a 30A, which is a little bit bigger of a reel, with an ugly stick elite spinning rod and five foot six two-piece. What ugly stick would you recommend for the 20A? And I thought this was actually, I, this was a couple weeks ago that I got this from him, and I sent him specific product recommendations that I'm going to talk about now. But as I was going through potential for today's show, I thought this is actually a pretty good discussion to have with, okay, yeah, here's what I recommend, but more about how to think about it. So the Akuma 20 uh bait feeder reel is an ultra light spinning reel. You know, it's not much bigger than like a chicken egg. It's a little reel. It's something that people would use for panfish and typical trout, you know, fish that are up to about a pound, pound and a half on average. And most of the stuff you're probably catching is more like that half pound, three quarter pound, or even smaller than that. That's ultra light. Ultra light rod and reel setups are generally somewhere between two and six pound line. Uh, some people might push that up to eight. I think six is a really sweet spot. Um, I love light line. Don't get me wrong. I hate two-pound line. Two-pound line is like trying to work with hair. It just It's not even about holding strength at that point to me. It's just that it's so finicky. It's such a pain in the ass. Four is kind of, I guess, when I'm dealing with... So I say six is kind of my sweet spot for ultralights, and it is now that I live in Texas. When I lived in Pennsylvania and I fished for trout and they can get line shy, I would have said four. Okay, And now there's a lot of other lines out there um, where you can get even uh, you know, thinner diameter but still heavier tests without going to braid. And, and fluorocarbon, like I haven't really used fluorocarbon much in uh, ultralight fishing yet, but it's something I need to look more into. Uh, the big thing with fluorocarbon versus uh, monofilament Monofilament has some natural stretch in it. Now, I know if you take a piece of monofilament, you hold it six inches apart, you pull all it does is rip into your hands and cut you. And you think there's no stretch in there. But when you have, you know, 150 feet of that line out, there's some stretch in it. And that's why traditionally when you're fishing and a fish takes the line, you have that, that big hook set, that big hit, because there's some stretch in that line. So you want to make sure we pull that hook and set that hook. Where with monofilament, even when we're not using circle hooks or kale hooks, we're using standard J-hooks, there's a lot less need for a full-on hook set. Maybe a little bit of a, a raising up of the rod tip in a reel, and that hook is going to get a good set just on the flex of the rod. Just a little aside there. But so when we're looking at ultralight, we're looking for these, this light, fast-action rod, and we generally think of um, ultralight rods as being small in length. And they can be, as short as four feet. So to me, where you're going to be fishing and what you're going to be fishing for has a lot to do with rod length when we get down to that ultralight length. When I lived in Pennsylvania and I fished mostly trout streams, I loved rods in the four-foot, six-inch length. I'm going to be in a creek. 
that I can walk across in 20 steps or less. And I'm going to be casting up and down that creek. And I'm going to have branches and bushes hanging over me. And when you're going through the bush with a fishing rod, if you're, you know, if you, if you're not rigged up, you don't have bait on or whatever, and you're not casting as you go, then it's a simple thing. You take your line and you either hook to an eye or the, the hook holder at the bottom of the rod. You keep the line tight to the rod, and you go through with the rod kind of like, like, a, like a fencing foil straight ahead. You don't carry it up and down vertical. It catches on shit that way. That way you can get down through stuff. But when you are moving and you're actively fishing, what you'll do is you need a enough line out so that you can hold the line about where the hook is with enough dangling below that you don't hook yourself. And to where that'll like line up about with where the, your reel is, and either you have two hands, one on each, and kind of together... Or you can take your, your casting hand and kind of hold it against the rod, and that way you can move through these tighter positions, and then when you come to this next open spot, you see, oh, there's a great little eddy there, you can go ahead and right away and cast out to it, right? So that's, that is beautiful for short rods. But what comes with longer rods is the ability to cast further, the ability to get a quicker action on that bait, and the ability to have more feel. So I recommend for most people, if you're going to be doing any kind of climbing through um, the woods, a five-foot two-piece ultralight to pair up with a reel comparable to the, uh, the Akuma ABF-20, anything in that class. If you're going to be on the sides of a lake and you don't have this issue, uh, what I have the exact same reel paired up with is a seven-foot, um, ugly stick elite rod, the same rod that, that uh, Mike was asking about. And that is really nice because even with very, very lightweight running six-pound line or four-pound line, man, you can get amazing casts with that because you have that long flexing rod to take that lightweight and get some snap into it. Uh, it also is really good when you get that sensitive little tap You just reel down a little bit and just raise that up. That long arcing set um, gives great hook sets. Uh, without, you know, you don't want to be tying into a half pound fish like you're setting the hook on a 12 pound snook, right? You want this like easy little thump, and you get that so easily with just the movement of the wrist with that longer rod. If you have really open spaces and you know you're going to have them, Akuma themselves make a rod that I, and I have links for all three of these rods in the show notes today. It's an eight foot six inch ultralight spinning rod. It is effing sweet. And what I love about it is if you're the kind of person who likes to fish for like spawning crappie in the spring, it's so long that it can be used a lot like a cane pole, and yet you could still whiz it out there if you want to. So when you're selecting a rod down in this ultralight class, I think your primary consideration is going to be what is the area around you and behind you and you have to go through like. And the more that it's a tight, dense situation, the smaller we go. That seven foot is sweet all around, but I don't want to climb through the bush with it. So... If I'm going to go fishing, some, there's some creeks I fish around here that are in the woods. And I'll usually take telescopic rods or something like with me to those. Uh, now, if you can wade, whether you're wearing waders, a hip or chest waders, or it's just really, you know, the time of year where it's, the water's comfortable to, to walk in shorts and old pair of tennis shoes in, 
then the longer rod, once you get there, is less of a hang-up because you just go up and down the creek where the natural openings are. So those are just things to think about if you are equipping yourself with a rod going forward. Next up comes from Derek. Derek says, what are the best things to sous vide? I just started using a sous vide. I made a beef tenderloin that was as good as any I've ever had, and it was so easy. A frozen trout I had turned out great, too. Both were just so easy. What else should I be doing? Also, what things don't do well, thanks. Um, let's start out with some of the things that do well, but I have had uneven results with by not going long enough. Uh, chicken. The first time I tied chicken wings, I thought they'd be great. They sucked. Well, I just increased my cook time to like six hours, and they came out fantastic. Um, but there is no doubt that the thing that sous vide will do better than anything else is red meat. Whether it's beef, or it's lamb, or venison, bison, red meat is the bomb. And what I want to talk a little bit about today with responding to this is why sous vide is worth doing in the first place for all of you guys out there that are still skeptical. Whenever you explain sous vide to somebody, they, it feel, to them it feels like you're talking about boiling the food. Well, you're not going to heat water to 212 with a sous vide machine. I think maybe you might be able to do it, but you're not going to, right? Um, generally speaking, we're cooking at temperatures between 130 and 150 degrees. There's, there's, you definitely can cook higher temperatures. It's definitely a thing, and it's definitely done. But you're, you, you, what it makes steaks so beautiful for is that you can get, if you like your steak, light pink. You can get your steak light pink all the way through. From edge to edge, light pink, and then you sear it off and you get light pink. If you like your steak, like I do, very rare, you know, at about 134 degrees temperature, when I cook a steak like that on the grill without sous vide, what I end up having to do is I get that centered at 134, and then it's, you know, edges out to pink and even gray at the very edges, right? I can't get the steak uniform all the way through. And the reason is really simple to understand. If you were to graph out cooking your steak, and let's say you wanted your steak uh, medium, right? Light pink, 145 degrees, right? It's a little bit much for me. It's very light pink. But you wanted, that's what you wanted. Well, as you're cooking that steak on the grill, you only have a very, very narrow window. When the temperature of that steak comes up to a temperature of about 140 degrees to 142 degrees, we need to stop cooking that steak. And we have to get that steak off the grill, and there's what's called carryover, and that steak will continue to climb in temperature. This is why so many people overcook their steaks, and it's why with general steak cooking, a thermometer is so important. You pull the steak at 145, it ends up well done. You wanted it pink. What happened? Well, it ended up 152 degrees because it had 7 degrees of carryover temperature. And it doesn't matter what number you're looking for. That window of when you have to stop is very small. And anything outside that window is either undercooked or overcooked to your personal preference. When we cook with sous vide, we bring that steak up, let's say, 138 degrees. 138 and a half. We just want to be a complete nitpicking asshole about this. I want 138 and a half. Fine. Dial it in. The water goes up to 138 and a half degrees. 
Because of the way that you have this gentle heating from all sides, bringing it up to a uniform temperature, you do not get carry-over heat with sous-vide. It doesn't happen. If you heat it to 138 degrees or 138.5 degrees, and you pull it out of the water and you sit it there, it will stay that temperature for a little while, and it immediately begins to fall. It does not get carry-over temperature. It is exactly what the number is, that you set it on. Then when we take that out of the bag, that because we, we cook it in a bag, it never touches the water. I don't advise this, but you could cook it in cow pee, and it wouldn't matter, because unless there's a leak in your bag, the liquid never touches the inside of the bag. Okay. Again, I'm not recommending that you do that. I'm just suggesting that you understand the two things are never twain shall come together. And then the steak or whatever else you're cooking, you can overcook and you can make them dry because you will end up with liquid in the bag. Don't throw that away, by the way. We'll talk about it in a second. But you're not going to get a really dried out piece of meat because, number one, we're not going to overcook it. And number two, the moisture sealed in the bag with the meat. So it's in a moist environment when it's cooked. When we dry it, we need to get it very, very dry. Then we need to sear it, and if you if you really want the most beautiful sear on your steaks, you then, once you get the initial sear, you hit it with a little bit of butter, and you hit it with a second sear, and that's where you get that, like, you could take a fork and tap it, and it, like, makes a crunch sound, like a tink, 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 like, when you do it. And that is why the best thing to do is meat. But what can you cook with sous vide? Anything. What's funny is the things that take longer to cook are things like vegetables. You have to come at higher temperatures for longer periods of time. Where when we, we, when we see the reason I say, even though you can, that I think the meat is the way to go for most things is because I like to cook vegetables hot and fast. So a wok is my go-to for like, if we can do green beans, asparagus and, uh, green peppers, right? You know, it's like three greens in there. And then maybe like a spinach at the end, just wilted, man, a hot wok, a little bit of soy sauce, get that char on it. Put that as a side next to that sous vide steak. See, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, some of the things I haven't done that apparently are really good to do are different egg dishes. That's something you can look into. And my choice for sous vide is the Anova cooker. I bought a Juul, and it crapped out on me. I might have got a lemon. I did use it a lot in a year. It might have just been a bad one. It might have had a bad part. Who knows? I might have abused it. But then I got an Anova, and I just overall like it better. I like... The Anova that has the Wi-Fi connecting capability, even though I almost never use it, because it also has an has a wheel on it, and I, I almost never use the, the technology behind, you know, the, the iPhone app or anything. I just you know pull it out, run the wheel up to the temperature you want, hit start, it goes, beautiful. Um, but what Jewel has, and you can download your app for free, is great recipes, great procedures, and great cook times. Anova has a pretty good app too, but I think the Jewel app and the Jewel website has more recipes. There's tons of sous vide communities and forums and things like that that you can check out. And I really want to recommend a, um, a um, channel for you that I've talked about before. It's called Sous Vide Everything. If you can sous vide it, this guy has sous vide it. And he is fantastic, great production value. He's done a lot of experiments, different compound butters, different qualities of steak, etc. Uh, man, dude is Brazilian and loves his meat, but he does everything. Um, I'm going to link to a video by him, though, that I think you'll really enjoy. How about making cheese 
with your sous vide machine. I'm not kidding. Now, here's if there's a downside to it is that this is a quick, what you would call like a farmer's cheese for a rennet where you're going to use vinegar. Um, and so you're going to get kind of a, you're not going to get a melty cheese. You're going to get kind of more like a, a creamy type of cheese. Though it is pretty firm, you can get a cheese press and, and make it really nice. Um, and basically we use two containers, one with the milk in it, one with water, and one nests in the other. We get an exact temperature on the milk. We drop in our vinegar. We strain it out. Those curds go into a cheese press that we can either home make or we can buy one, and you can make a cheese. And you can then, even though it's a little bit of a bland cheese, it's kind of like a, a queso blanco, but it doesn't, again, it's not going to be something you would make a queso blanco uh, cheese dip out of because it doesn't melt really well because it's not that kind of, it's not like an aged cheese. Um, but, boy, you can do things like diced jalapenos and stuff in it, and it's pretty damn good. I'll put a link to that video. And it is by the Suvi Everything Guy. So his channel I recommend subscribing to. The other link I'm going to put in today's video for really understanding what you can do with Suvi is a link to a video by a guy named Alex the French Guy. And he's another big-time cooking YouTuber. Hugely successful guy. And when someone says they're going to do better than Gordon Ramsay at one of Gordon's signature dishes and then does it, you want to pay attention. So like one of the crown jewels of, of beef is beef wellington. And this is a very beautiful cut of beef, usually a, a, a tenderloin, um, wrapped in a pastry. And it's baked in that pastry, and you want that beautiful, rare piece of meat in that light, flaky pastry. This is the ultimate test of how good sous vide can be. Because when you're making that dish, you have to get the bread done in that crispy, flaky, golden color and the meat done at the same time. And it's very challenging. So what Alex does, as you can already guess, he sous vides the fillet to the perfect doneness. Brings it all the way down in temperature till it's cold. Wraps the bread pastry around it. Bakes it. And then all you're concerned with is the bread done. The beef is going to be fine. It was ice cold when it went in. It will be nice and warm now. It won't overcook. And you have a perfect beef wellington. If you can do a perfect beef wellington with a, with, with a device, and you can always do it perfectly, which is what sous lets you do, That's something you want to learn to cook with. So I really encourage you guys to consider learning more about sous vide and cooking with sous vide. And I'll tell you, it is a learning curve. You will learn what actually getting the meat very dry really means. You will learn what searing hot for doing your searing really means. And you will learn that some cuts of meat are really thin. And if you try to sear even a perfectly sous vide piece of meat, if it's too thin, when you go to sear it, it's going to cook through. So there's a certain thickness that we need to be looking at. And to me, that's three-quarters of an inch is your minimum thickness uh, for a piece of meat you're doing sous vide. And you'll learn that just because we can do a ribeye in an hour, this nice thick one-inch ribeye, if we have a ribeye roast, it's going to have to go a lot longer because it's a bigger piece of meat, etc. And you'll learn as you go. But, man, I really recommend you guys consider uh, getting a sous vide cooker. Again, I recommend the Anova. I'll have a link to it in the show notes today and the videos that I mentioned. So next up, I have a question from Jared. Jared says, have you heard anything about Kratom? I heard about it recently when John Bush was on the Tom Woods Show, episode 1416. It's been shown to help people break addictions to opiates and opium. 
as well as a number of other habit-forming substances. In my own research, it seems to have similar effects to CBD. The upshot is that there shouldn't be any issues with false positives on drug tests since there's no FDA or DEA restrictions on this herb yet. Interested people could check out their local laws, though, because some states have outlawed Kratom. Um, here is an article that sums up a lot of what I, I have said. It's a kratomnews.org article on drug testing. And it does say that there is actually some potential for Kratom to trigger some drug tests, but that's not been validated. And there are specific tests for Kratom use for organizations that may want to screen for it, that it can be tested for, but that it probably isn't going to be in your random everyday drug test. Uh, let me tell you what I think I know about Kratom, and I'm going to say that one more time, what I think I know about Kratom. I know that I do not know everything about this particular subject. I will tell you this. When saying the effects are similar to CBD, maybe from pain relief and anti-inflammatory standpoint, possibly, but um, CBD works on the cannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system, and Kratom does work on the opiate system, the opiate receptors in the human body. They work in totally different means, and you can literally drink a bottle of CBD oil, and the most that's going to happen to you is you're going to go to sleep. Um, you, I, I'm not going to say that it's impossible to get high from CBD. I'm sure that anything can be done if one works hard enough on it, but in, in general use of CBD, you don't get any kind of euphoric energy, big energy boost or something like that. It's more of a calming of the cannabinoid system that will allow for things like sleep and definitely aids with pain relief, but CBD primarily causes pain relief through reduction of inflammation, okay? And by balancing the cannabinoid system, if the cannabinoid system itself is out of balance, which can happen in the human body. Kratom, again, works with the opiate receptors. So, again, I don't know a ton about Kratom. I know quite a bit about opiate-based drugs. And the primary way that opiates provide pain relief is they actually trick the mind into believing that you're not in pain. This is why they can create euphoric feelings, and this is why you actually can, after you develop a dependency on opiates, People start taking opiates not to feel better, but to not feel like crap. It's one of the reasons that they're so addictive. But they can have euphoric-like feelings as well. Not the high that a lot of people typically associate with being high on drugs, being really, really uh, stoned out of your gourd, so to speak, right? Um, Now, Kratom, as far as I understand it, absolutely does... um, Kratom absolutely does, at times, with snuff usages, create some level of euphoric feeling. And basically a mild version of an opiate-type high. That's my understanding. It also is good for pain relief. It also is non-addictive. So I am not making a case that um, Kratom is a direct substitute for opiates. In, in that it does the kind of um, mental screwing of the mind that opiates do. It certainly does not have the addictive potential that opiates do. In a way, again, i got to be careful because I know some of you guys are really dedicated to your causes, man, and I'm not saying anything negative here. Just hear me out. In a way, it makes me think of cocaine. 
here's why, before you get all mad and start typing angry hate mails to me. Cocaine has been traditionally used by the people of Central and South America for thousands and thousands of years with no problems whatsoever because they don't refine it into a chemically imbibed white powder that you snort up their nose. Um, generally, the way that it's used is either in the form of a tea or chewing of the raw leaves, which had enabled a lot of um, extra energy and the ability to work through uh, tough situations and muscle soreness and to do more work. That is exactly how Kratom has been used in the Far East, the exact same way by Native populations for thousands of years. So that's what I mean by it reminds me of or it is similar to in the way that it, that it acts. Um, Kratom can be consumed in powdered form, uh, which allows for a specific known dose. But I would believe that, uh, again, I'm here to speculation now, that Kratom, like any plant-based um, substance, that five grams of one plant might be different than five grams of another plant based on the alkaloids in it that caused this reaction in the first place. So my understanding of Kratom is that it is both something that can be used recreationally and something that could be used for medical purposes, along with something that could be used to reduce opiate withdrawal and get people off of opiates to the point where they can get well enough to then not need Kratom either, but be able to use it when they want to without the detrimental effects. All of that sounds wonderful, but I also don't know what I don't know. So when, when CBD came up, and I said, this is what I know and this is what I don't know. What I said was, I would love to get somebody on the air that really knows their shit about CBD and really has the facts from a scientific level, from a medicinal level, and from an everyday understanding level. And we got three great guests. So I'm asking for your help today. Who do you think I should bring on to talk about Kratom? John Bush, I know. I can get in touch with John. He'll come on the show. Is he the right guy? I don't know. I like John. I really do. I've backed some of his projects in the past, but I also know he's selling Kratom. Um, how much scientific knowledge goes along with that? I don't know. So I'm, I'm totally open to have John on, but I think it would be nice. You know, I had a, 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 a uh, graduate-level researcher on about CBD, and we learned some things about CBD that you would never hear from you know a shop owner. But I also had a shop owner on, and I had an advisor to a shop owner on, and we learned a lot. And I have found CBD to be one of the best things in the world for some of my issues, specifically difficulty sleeping at times, with no side effects. What I would add to Kratom, for now anyway, one of the real advantages that I see to Kratom is that anybody can grow it legally. Except for, I guess, Louisiana. And, you know, again, check your local ordinances and laws and states and whatever, you know, upgrade is doing to get his money in your state and prevent you from having freedom. But, you know, in Texas, if I want to grow Kratom, I can just grow it. It's actually a relative to the coffee plant. And you can grow it like a house plant. So it gives you control over your own life. And it's sustainable that way. So. I think it has a lot of potential, but I don't know what I don't know. So you guys 
reach out to people you know that are subject matter experts or let me know and I will go out and invite them in. Uh, last one today is from Travis in Kentucky. Travis says, question for you. Uh, I'm thinking about getting a new Marlin lever action rifle. I endorse that decision. Should I get a 30, 30, 357, or 44? Details up in the market for a basic lever action rifle, most likely a Marlin. Which caliber would you choose? I know you're a fan of the 357, but would you compare all three? Users for this rifle would be occasional deer hunting, less likely less than 100 yards, homestead security and predator control, and just shooting for fun as much, if not more, than anything. So ammo cost could be a factor, too. I've done some looking, and it seems all three would fit the bill, so help me decide. Thanks for everything, Travis in Kentucky. Well, Travis, I'm going to say, if you're worried about prices of ammo, then you really want to look at reloading. All three of these cartridges are very affordable to reload for. The most affordable is the .357 Magnum. Uh, while the projectiles can be a little bit more than the cheapest of both, uh, your good quality mid-range stuff is going to be equal or cheaper on the .357, and you use less powder, <coughs> your brass is less expensive, and it's a straight wall case, which makes it very easy to reload, even with a simple cheap tool like the Lee Loader, which works with a hammer and a block of wood. Um, .3030, though, is very easy to reload, and they actually make a loader for that cartridge as well. It's a rimmed cartridge, all four are very easy to reload and very well suited to the lever action. Let me put it this way. From just a personal opinion, you can't be more accurate in describing what you've actually done in your life. I own two different .44 Magnum rifles. One is a lever gun, one is a, semi, uh, a single shot. I own one, two, three .357, mag four .357 Magnum rifles and several .357 Magnum handguns. I do not now, nor have I ever owned a 3030 Winchester. I don't have anything against it. Just when it came down to brass tacks, what I'm going to spend my money on and you know, outfoot my inventory with of, of, of firearms, I have never had a need for it. And I'll, I'll tell you why. If I'm going to move off the 357 or the 44 in a rifle platform, because and I'm going to move to the 3030, I'm going to primarily do that because of increased range. So then if I'm going to have a rifle and I want more range than either the .357 or the .44, I'm going to be inclined to step up to something like a .308, Winchester, or a .30-06. This kind of space in between those two, it doesn't interest me much. It doesn't do much for me. Especially, you know, you're talking about predator control on your homestead and stuff like that. You know, the .357, .44 is going to do whatever you need. Shooting deer, 357-44 is going to do whatever you need. The 357 is a 100-yard round. The 44 is a 150-ish yard round if you know your weapon well. Uh, the 3030 is a 200-plus yard round. Um, but inside that 100-yard range, the three of them are all more than adequate, and they all do what I've always said, death not coming in degrees. Additionally, in a lever gun, The 357 and the 44 Magnum allow for a larger amount of rounds to the rifle because they're shorter. And they load down well, and they can be loaded down without you doing the loading. So I can shoot 38 specials or 44 spe 38 special or 44 special in the 357 or 44 Magnums respectively without doing my own loading. The 3030, there is some youth rounds out there, but if you're going to load it down, you got to do it yourself. Um, You can get sometimes really great deals on like 38 Special Ammo or .44 as well, but 38 Special, like Sportsman Guide is a place to keep an eye on. They'll sometimes have like a huge ammo can um, full of 38 Specials for like, it ends up costing about the same as buying 22 Long Rifle now. 
Uh, so I I would give my nod to the 357. I would say that if you're thinking that at some point you may want to go after animals that are a little bit bigger bodied, the 44 Magnum will do anything in North America. So within its you know within its limitations and proper ammo. So I would confine myself honestly in a lever action purchase to one of those two specifically when you tell me you're not going to be going beyond 100 yards. For economy's sake, I would lead to the 357. If I wanted more power and more flexibility in things like, you know, using, uh, uh, you can load up dust shot rounds basically with the 44 and have a mini shotgun and stuff, um, you know, for shooting things like, you know, close shots on grouse and things like that, uh, I would go to the 44. It's going to cost you more, but it's going to do a little more. And that's, that's how you have to make that decision because there's no wrong answer. If you write me back and go, Jack, I listened to your whole thing, but when I thought about it, I just think cowboys are cool, and the 30-30 makes me think of the Old West, and uh, I like having a little bit more range, and in spite of the fact that I asked you and said I cared what you thought, I don't really care. Um, and I'm going to go buy a 30-30. It's a great. It's a great round. I just don't personally get called to it. It doesn't have a siren song for me. So there you go. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, remember, you can support us two ways. One is by becoming an MSB member. Uh, we talked about CBD today. I ordered CBD today, and I saved over $20 on a single order of CBD oil. Actually, it was almost 30, so 28 bucks. So a membership's $50. I saved on my own program today, you know, almost 30 bucks. And then I ordered some coffee, and I saved like another 12 so I saved almost the full price of membership myself today. I sell my membership because I believe in my membership because my membership really saves you money. And I think if you use it over the year, you will make a profit by being a member. I think you can get to the point where you're like, I don't even like Jack anymore, but I'm going to still be a member because it's just financially smart for me to be one. If you do like me and you like the work that I do, you're supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Next up, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. In addition to things like the sous vide cooker that I mentioned today, you can find all of the stuff that I recommend on Amazon at tspaz.com. If you start your shopping there, it doesn't matter what you eventually buy. You do help support us in the work that we do. My item of the day for you today is the Nebo 30, 6350 Larry Worklight. Uh, this is a, I ended up with one of these because a guy found one in a ceiling. It was probably a cable tech or an electrician left up in a drop ceiling at his office. And he, he got it, and he brought it down. It didn't work. He's like, well, maybe the guy left it on up there. And apparently he did. He put new batteries in it. He's like, this little thing's bright, and they're like 11 bucks. And he sent me one. He's like, you got to check this thing out. I like it. And so I checked it out, and they are about 11 bucks for a single one. But if you buy a four-pack of them, um, you get the price down to about $8 a light. Uh, it's a 170 lumen light with three AAA batteries in it. It is very bright. I have a video in the review where you can see how bright this little light really is. And the way it's designed, it's really great for what it's designed for working. So you can clip it on something. It's got a magnet, etc. You can hang it. Um, you can lay it on its side. But when you're working and you need to put a light where it actually doesn't just put a beam, but it has more of a, uh, an area of light, that's what this thing is. It's like a miniature mechanics light for under the hood of a car. That fits in your shirt pocket like a pen for you know eight bucks or like I said if you buy a, for eleven fifty but if you buy four of them it's stupid cheap eight dollars a light uh, they come in different colors they come in plastic they're awesome here's the cool thing we we wrote the company and said why did you call it the Larry 
And they said, no one's ever asked before, but we, when we were making this light, we thought this was a real workman's light. This is a light that everybody would use. And the hardest working guy they knew was this guy that worked in their building named Larry, who was an electrician. So they named the light after him. I thought that was pretty cool. So check it out by Nebo. And Nebo has a lot of really cool lights. Once you get over to Amazon, check out the Nebo stuff. You can click on the Nebo name, uh, and you can see all the lights they have. Everything I've ever gotten by Nebo has been great. And again, if you do your shopping at tspaz.com, you help support us no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day. This is number week. All the songs today are a number song. Today's song is called Four and Twenty by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And if you add up the numbers four and twenty, you would get 24. That's not what the song means. We talked about Kratom and drug usage and CBD and cannabis and all of that. And you might be thinking 420 for, no, doesn't have anything to do with that either. Um, There's kind of some literary license taken here. Uh, Stephen Stills wrote this song. And what he means is really like 64 and 20. So 84. The, the guy in the song is telling his story from the age of 84. And this is a man waiting to die because he doesn't have anything that matters in his life. That's what this is. And I'm going to do my own interpretation of this. I don't think he's still broke. When I read the, the story of the song on Song Facts, it kind of reads like he's still broke. But when I listen to the song and I listen to the words, what I hear is a man that grew up in a poor family with poor parents that worked himself to death his whole life to have something more. And he got it, but he discovered a different kind of poverty. He lost a woman that he loved, and she's not there anymore. And the material possessions he has don't matter because he's still alone. There's a lesson in that. I talk all the time about working hard, hustling, valuing the ethic of hard work to build the life that you want, having goals and actually holding yourself accountable and achieving them. Don't lose the ones that you love around the, along the way. There may be a point early on where you have to give more than you want to and you have to sacrifice more than you want to, but be working to something. And as you get there, make sure you take the time to strengthen and maintain the bonds with the people you love. Otherwise, you may have all the stuff you want, but nothing you really need in your life. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Four and twenty years ago We're coming to this life The son of a woman and a man Who lived in strife was tired of being poor And he wasn't into selling door to door And he worked like the devil to be more A different kind of Now upsets me so Night after sleepless night I walk the floor and I want to know Why am I so alone? Where is my woman? Can I bring her home? Have I driven her away? Morning comes.